Welcome back to another episode of Closing the Loop. My guest today is Alex Gladstein. Alex is the Vice President of Strategy for the Oslo Freedom Forum and the Chief Strategy Officer of the Human Rights Foundation, a nonpartisan, nonprofit organization that promotes and protects human rights globally. In recent years, Alex has placed particular focus and emphasis on speaking, writing, and educating about Bitcoin. In particular, its powerful potential to serve as a means for people the world over to protect themselves from various forms of oppression and establish greater freedom in their lives. His efforts, and in particular his prolific and popular writing, has helped many to appreciate the faults in the current global monetary system, the broad yet under-recognized consequences of them, and the salutary role which Bitcoin may play in their resolution. I believe Alex is a tremendously valuable voice in helping to educate the world about Bitcoin, and I'm extremely grateful for having the chance to speak with him today. Enjoy. Alex, how you doing? Great. It's great to see you, John. Thanks for, for having me on. It's great to see you too. It's been a while. I think the last time we spoke was um, maybe at the NYDIG event at Miami at Bitcoin 2021 after all the big hullabaloo about <laughs> El Salvador announcements and stuff and everyone was pretty jazzed up. And, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of good since then, but obviously in recent uh, weeks, a lot of things that, you know, have perhaps dampered the, uh, the mm -hmm. mood somewhat. So, uh, first of all, I just want to say or commend you rather on not just the work you're doing with HRF, which ho hopefully we'll get into, but man, your output, uh, you know, since the time we spoke has been incredible. You know, I've, I've read all of your pieces, um, reread re several in preparation for this discussion. And first of all, the, you know, the, the depth that you go into in, in these and really providing information and context about why these issues are important, right? Digging into the history of, of, of actually what's going on. And then your cadence, man, your, your output rate is just, uh, I don't know how you find the hours in the day, but I just wanted to commend you on, on the work you've done recently. I'm really deeply grateful for that. I, I just tapped into this drive, um, around April of last year, almost about a year ago. And, um, I just kicked off this conversation with Bitcoin magazine because I, previous to that, I, I, I had been doing a lot of journalism and writing, um, but not in a structured way. Um, I'd written for all different kinds of magazines and, and outlets, including, you know, CNN and, and time and, and mainstream media, but, but never in like a routine way. Um, and I just said, why don't, why don't we try to work together on something regular? And they were like excited about it. And they gave me the space and time to do that. And, you know, I got to basically determine my, output schedule. And for a while there, yeah, I was putting out a new piece every couple of weeks, which was, uh, which was, which was, it is not really sustainable. I mean, it's like, I basically, you know, I have my job at HRF and I have my family and then it's like around 9 PM, then that would be like my writing time from like nine to like one. And I would just sit there and read books and research and, you know, go over interviews and, um, yeah, no, it's really fun though, because it's allowed me to do what I've always wanted to do, which is long form journalism. Um, I grew up reading the New Yorker and I loved the long stories in there that would go into these kind of like niche topics. And I love the fact that they gave the writers the space to do sometimes eight, nine, 10,000 words on a topic. 
I yeah, well, I was going to make that, that point. It's like they're not short either, right? They're not nah. just kind of throwaway <laughs> opinion pieces. They're like really long, you yeah. know? So, and, and a I lot think, of work goes into that. Look, my goal is to keep doing it. Um, we'll just have to see how it looks. But, you know, the latest one that I did took about two and a half months of research and reading and writing and interviews. Um, and it, it it's kind of, I have kind of two... Um, kind of interests that I've been following the last couple of years. One, one is like Bitcoin adoption in emerging markets and dictatorships. And obviously a lot of my work in this space in terms of writing relates to that, as, as you saw, obviously, whether it be following what's happening in Cuba or Palestine or El Salvador or Togo um, or Afghanistan. Um, that's, that's one track. The other track though, is like monetary history and, and kind of like where the dollar uh, came from, how did it cement itself as the world reserve currency and where do we go from here? And that's almost like a separate, uh, track. And I just published the third, let's say piece in that track, uh, which started with the petrodollar article. And then I had a piece on what, what's called super imperialism. And the third piece just came out two days ago about the invisible cost of war in the age of quantitative easing. And, you know, I, I've, I've been just very, uh, fascinated by this topic of like, how does the current money system work? It's so opaque and it's so difficult to understand and takes so much time and energy. So I hope that, you know, some of my writing can, can at least inspire curiosity into people, um, into thinking about topics that otherwise seem boring. Like the, you know, a lot of people say the bond market and they look at the bond market and they think it's boring. The bond market is fascinating and absolutely you know, critical to the way the world works. And it's where a lot of what I would say, um, almost, um, geez, I mean, like just, just government manipulation uh, of, of markets happens there. I mean, that's really where the U S government as the world power has done the most manipulation has been in the bond markets. So I've really tried to explore that in my latest piece. I appreciate you reading them all and uh, happy to say that I'm putting, I've been able to put a bunch of them, uh, in the form of a book that's coming out uh, in a week or two called check your financial privilege. Um, and it'll be 12 chapters, like, you know, in one place with a lot of my writing and reporting from across the world over the last few years. And that'll be out kind of at Bitcoin 22 and, and beyond. So I'm really happy to have that out. That'll be like a nice, easy one-stop shop for people if they want to learn about Bitcoin's impact around the world. Um, and I'll do my best to keep going, but I do appreciate your words. And I, I can tell you it is hard and it, it is exhausting uh, for sure. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think I appreciate it and I think the world is ultimately better off, but you know, you, you, in some of those articles and especially the most recent one, I mean, you bring up the, the, the point that the enormous elephant in the room when you're, you know, whether you're listening to an economist or a politician or anyone talking about the state of the world and the geopolitical, you know, winds that blow and whatever's going on is, as you say, this, this kind of perverse system of how war is financed and how, you know, all of these ge geopolitical idea, um, activities are financed. And I think you mentioned that in Stephanie Kelton's, you know, of MMT fame book about, I think it was called the deficit myth, right? And she's mm -hmm. basically making the case that, you know, you can't default if you're, if your debt is in your own currency. Yes. Uh, the, the, the word war is not in the index, I think. Or, well, the, or, the, the words Iraq and Afghanistan don't appear in the book. Right. Um, so my point was simply that like a lot of people promote this idea of uh, 
just sort of debt monetization and and spending until you get inflation. And this is sort of this idea of domestic expansionary monetary policy, but they never talk about the the foreign element of it or the, the foreign policy element of it. They, they just don't. It's like, it's totally divorced in their mind. So you have all these people talking about how we should adopt a MMT framework. Yeah. I want to hear w- about the MMT framework for the forever wars. Like how, that, that's what drove me to explore that piece. Like, <laughs> the, the the connection is deep and and troublesome and we have to think hard about it because if you're just doing debt monetization to pay for stuff and the citizenry is unaware of what's happening um guess what the government is going to spend a lot of money on wars that are not that relevant to the citizens you know yeah. we had this social contract in the united states at least um for 60 70 years where wars were paid for with blood and treasure through conscription and through taxes and through liberty bonds. And we can argue about whether they were moral or not. That's, that's a whole different argument. But the point is the population, you know, supported it. And Vietnam, we, we, we broke that. We broke that contract and we started to um, basically quietly borrow. We ended conscription and, you know, we started to experiment with things like drones and robotics. And, you know, today, the average American is just so distant from war. I mean, we have this war operation inherent resolve. Most Americans don't even know about this war. It's, it's, it's been eight, we've been fighting it for eight years. It's cost tens of billions of dollars. It's active in three countries. I, to be frank, man, I didn't even know about this war, you know, the totality of it until recently. I'm supposed to be relatively, <laughs> relatively educated on the topic. It's like, right. it's so hidden from the public. Like, mm-hmm. I, I don't know, man, I'm just shocked by the whole thing. And I truly believe that, you know, if you look at the United States today and the way the country is financed, and we look at the six trillion dollars the government spends every year, and we look at the fact that you know four of it, four four and change of it, you know most of it is 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 paid for by taxes by by the citizenry in some sort of social contract. Again, you don't have to agree with it or not, but that that largely covers things like entitlements um, and other stuff that that you know is not violent, and then. And then, you know, the difference is borrowed, which adds to this huge pile, which is now past $30 trillion. And a lot of that's war related. And, and that's the problem, right? So the cost of war should be higher. Um, today, the government can borrow almost at zero. Uh, and it, it, it doesn't, it basically, if, you, if the Fed funds rate is 0.08%, then, <laughs> you know, then it doesn't cost the U.S. government very much to pay uh, interest. And we can keep doing these forever wars. But if the Fed funds rate is at 3% or 4%, which would be like historically normal or whatever, um, then all of a sudden you're talking like 40% of our, of our $6 trillion budget is, is, is um, going towards paying interest. And, and you know, then, then we can't, we, we can't do the forever wars. So, so it's very clear, clearly related to the bond market. So I, I tried to dive into that. I'm still thinking about it. I don't know if there's like another piece there, but um I just think this is so, so important to discuss war finance. Um, the other day I was talking to somebody who, who mentioned that the German people just um, uh, announced they're going to spend 100 billion euros to, to get involved with supporting Ukraine. Now we could say, great, sounds good. I mean, maybe that's a national security imperative for that country. However, I was like asking a, an economist and we were discussing and I was like, well, how are they going to pay for that? Is that going to come from taxes? Um, and they were like, almost certainly not. And, you know, I was like, well, don't you think that matters? Because the German people might feel like they should support Ukraine, but 
a poll, public polling on whether a country wants, want, quote unquote, wants to support a war is a very different public polling than are you willing to pay for it yourself, either through your children conscripting or yourself conscripting or through taxes or through liberty bonds. Like, like these two things are extremely different. And the fact that like democracies around the world today pay for war by borrowing is just making us more belligerent, generally speaking. Um, I mean, say what you want. I mean, the difference between a dictator and a democracy at the end of the day is supposed to be that the democracy, democratic systems have some sort, you know, more restraint over their government. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if Russia was a quote unquote liberal democracy, it, it almost certainly would not have invaded Ukraine in the way it did um, and, and, and taken all the actions that Mr. Putin has taken in the last few days. Um, but he's a tyrant, so he can do whatever he wants. We're supposed to be different. And my argument, my thesis here sadly is that is that we're not in many ways and and you know you look back at the iraq war and how just insane it was that we we did a very similar thing to what putin's doing now in ukraine the unilateral attack of another country essentially for resources and land um and 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 just how crazy it was that we had all these young american a whole generation out in the desert in iraq for for a decade plus doing what you mean you think about the hurt locker and stuff like that and it's Man, it just, it was so devastating for our country in so many ways, so shameful and unethical. And that was really only possible because of this monetary standard that we have. So I hope people ask big questions, I guess. <laughs> yeah, well, I've got two for you. And one is, um, you know, this is the, you know, brings to mind that, that, that notion of the evil you know is better than the evil you don't know. Right. So, and I'm not, you know, let's not get into discussion like who's worse, the American sure. imperialism over the last hundred years or, fill in the blank tyrant, but just to say that mm-hmm. the fill in the blank tyrant, you know, to watch out for them, you know, because their actions are more overt perhaps. And whereas the situation that you're describing where a populace can be so removed from the actions of their government, because the method of funding is so opaque that they don't have to be actively involved in determining whether or not they're ideologically or otherwise aligned with or for the actions that the government are taking. So People aren't as invested, both financially but also emotionally, in you know drone bombings in in Yemen or yeah, what you know and, all of these sorts of things. Uh-huh. So my yeah. my two questions yeah, for you is just one: do the do the people that you engage with to talk about things like mm-hmm. human rights are they aware? Are is this even on their radar that this piece is so integral to to so many of the things that they are opposing, either you know explicitly or implicitly? And two. This system, uh, it's not a self-sustaining system, right? So fr- it, cracks begin to emerge as it becomes more and more abused over time. And I, I think the current landscape that we're in, especially over the last, you know, even 12 months, let's say, perhaps some of the, uh, re- some of the consequences of operating this way are starting to emerge. And one perhaps very simple is if you continue to monetize your debt to carry out whatever aims you may have, at some point, it's going to show up in, well, one, extreme wealth inequality, and two, most likely inflation, because you keep having to paper over all those things. And yes. here we are, where the stated print is, whatever it is, 7 or 8%. Yeah. We, all, we all know it in, in actual fact, it's much higher than that. Higher so than that, yeah. at what point, I mean, how do you see the limits of the, where do you see the limits of, mm-hmm. uh, of a system like this? And how do you see it kind of unfolding from here? Yeah. So the first question, look, the human rights community globally is, is split into two general camps. One um, is very critical of the United States. I mean, they're fighting their own struggles 
whether they be in Ukraine, in Yemen, wherever, and and a lot, and they have a very critical eye to the U.S. and and I think that's a fair position to have. There's also, um, and, and that could be American activists. I mean, I, I, I did a whole piece on July 4th and American values and how I think Bitcoin is so connected to the American idea and not necessarily American history and the outcome, but, but certainly the, the values that we were founded on, it's extremely, it reverberates very strongly with things like free speech and private property. And I interviewed two people. I view, interviewed Isaiah Jackson, who's a Bitcoin advocate in the African-American community in the U.S., and I interviewed my friend Faisal, who's an Iraqi um, uh, immigrant and a new U.S. citizen here. And I think they 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 cover the two camps I'm descri- describing pretty well. I mean, as much as Isaiah is an activist who's pretty critical of the United States, and he was like basically like, "What the fuck were they doing with the Iraq War and all this stuff?" And he's he's he questions it, you know what I mean? And 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 fairly so, right? On the other hand, Faisal points out correctly also how amazing America is in many ways, right? So, so you have these two narratives and activists tend to be in one of the other camps. I mean, the Chinese activists tend to be very grateful to be in America. Do you know what I mean? They tend to be extremely mm-hmm. grateful, <laughs> like quite obviously, North Korean defectors, Cuban defectors. They tend to be like, guys, like we have to be grateful for what's here. Um, then again, there's a bunch of activists, maybe they come from Saudi Arabia or US allies or whatever, and they're more critical. Um, so, you know, it depends, but generally speaking, I think that, um, I think the activist community is diverse, but generally speaking, they know, they know that no country is perfect, you know, but I think they know that they want a system that, that, that what they want is no tyrant. Like that's clear. We all agree. We don't want to be ruled by one person arbitrarily. You know, what does the ideal system look like? There's no agreement on that. Um, you know, but at the end of the day, uh, it is a diverse group and they're not unaware about like the things that I've discussed. Um, I think they are generally unaware of the monetary piece. Uh, the human yeah. rights community generally is, is not connected to the conversations around currency and monetary policy. These are separated, I think intentionally actually, you know, and more, more recently this is done through fed speak where the federal reserve has invented terms like quantitative easing or whatever. I, you know, they didn't invent it. Someone else did, but they, they use these terms, um, uh, or ZERP or whatever. They, they use these big terms to like hide what it means for a person. I mean, if they used more simple terms, people would be shocked at, at what's happening, but they don't, they use these like complicated terms. I mean, if you go and try to read about the mechanics of the bond market, like, and you don't know what you, you don't know much about it, you're lost immediately. It, it's like, it's hidden behind this wall. Um, it's kind of interesting, but in general, well, you make this, yeah, go ahead. You made this example from, I believe world war two era where a, I think it was actually fed employees where they were buying bonds and they specifically were informed what that the, their money was paying, <laughs> yeah. what their investment like, was paying for. for it was Spitfire. like a tank and a, a Panzer yeah. or something like that. Yeah, Whereas yeah. like if today, if when, if when the fed carried out QE, if it had to publicly state like this is for drone bomb, drone bombing Yemen or something like there might be a more visceral reaction to something like that. Right. Yeah. And I, I think this just to conclude that first point about the awareness, like I think people are aware of this the fact that something's wrong and that there's problems even in even in or especially in depending on your respective American governance. But they yeah. aren't really aware of the monetary piece. And that's what we yeah. can work on and talk about. And that's what I want to spark conversation around. And totally. And yeah, like if the U.S. government issued um what's called uh i think the way i think it's called um as is asset 
asset specific, but there, there's some terminology for, for a debt that's issued by a government that's specific to different industries. So it's not really done. Um, but yeah, if the U S government like had to say that, Hey, we're going to raise money specifically, um, to do Iraq, like these bonds will go towards that. You'd have to start thinking about those, those bonds would be labeled as such in the market. Would they trade at a discount? Would ESG funds accept them? Like you, like certainly they would trade at a discount because they're blood bonds basically. And no ESG fund would, would accept them. And, and like, that's just not the world we live in. Like that's not how it's done. They're hidden among normal debt. Um, so anyway, that's, that's, that's one piece of it. And as far as like, where do we go from here? What's the limits of the system? I think you're watching. I mean, I think the last few days are an incredible historical signpost in terms of like, mm -hmm. um, governments around the world are realizing that there's, there's two kinds of money, right? There's inside money and outside money. Um, inside money is somebody else's liability. Outside money isn't. So historically outside money was gold and inside money was, you know, whatever, like fiat of whatever kind. So you look at a country like Russia. Um, Russia had something like a half trillion dollars of, of reserves uh, in American securities, dollar denominated, you know, securities of different kinds. Um, a lot of it was lent out to the money markets, et cetera, et cetera. They found, they, 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 you know, they probably knew this on some level, but they found out pretty shockingly in the last few days. And there's photos of the head of the central bank of Russia. And you can see her like just her face and everything after all this stuff had been announced. Those weren't their savings. That was, that was somebody else's. So someone was able to freeze all of that. Right. And I think that's kind of shocking. And I think the Chinese are in a similar position. They hold a trillion dollars of American securities that they've been like, uh, reducing their position a little bit, but, um, and they, they aren't buying at the pace they once were. Um, probably partly for this reason. Um, but generally speaking, this is a, this is a massive historical moment where you, you reached the end of the American hyperpower financial era in terms of every country in the world, like not just wanting, but kind of being forced to save in dollars and dollar denominated instruments. This is a big deal. You know, what I'm talking about is the first, the Afghans realizing that their savings weren't theirs and the whole thing got frozen. It's Honestly, the most shameful thing my government's done since invade Iraq is probably steal the money from the Afghan government, um, rather the, the deposits of the Afghan people. Um, but that happened. And now you have this and governments around the world are realizing, wow, like maybe we shouldn't save mostly in inside money. So what are your options? Your options as a, as a nation state for outside money are, are basically gold, um, you know, commodities uh and you know bitcoin right and and we're not quite there yet with the bitcoin but man i mean what a setup for the next decade in terms of like adoption of this thing and i think it's so interesting because it's not a clear decision for governments like again putin we knew putin's plan putin had planned this invasion a long time ago um documents leaked like you know he knew what he was going to do uh, an invasion like that takes careful planning. Um, and, and his plan was to, to, to rely on the gold that he has in Moscow in the, you know, in, in, in his physical custodial possession, as well as increased ties, uh, to Russia, rather to China and India. This is sort of clear. This was his plan. There was no Bitcoin in Putin's plan. Um, I think there's a reason for that. I think Bitcoin is freedom money. And I think that 
Putin knows that and he's afraid of it. Like he's seen his rivals raise money in Bitcoin. Navalny raised a lot of money in Bitcoin. I think he knows he can't control it. And I think he's a little worried about it, to say it mildly. Same thing with the CCP. I mean, the CCP, right before their 100th year anniversary, as we all know, last summer, around the last time we spoke, I mean, they they they, they basically tried to get rid of all the Bitcoin miners in, in the country because they were afraid of Bitcoin. So this is like the dictator's dilemma. Like on the one hand, they know that they cannot save an inside money and they have to create some way of saving for their national interest, uh, national security in a way that cannot be confiscated. On the other hand, they know that if they push Bitcoin and if they, they, they kind of make it known that they're saving in Bitcoin and that they, they push it more into their economy, into their people, they'll lose control over the population. So it's a really serious dilemma and I don't know how it's going to go and it's going to be fascinating to watch over the next few years. Now, democratic countries shouldn't have an issue. I mean, democratic countries should be able to easily stockpile Bitcoin um, because they, they're not going to be as worried about losing control over the population. Um, the United States, it should, be, it should be a straightforward slam dunk for the U.S. The U.S. should have a strategic Bitcoin position right now. Um, right. Ditto Denmark, ditto Germany, ditto Iceland, ditto any government that that's not a dictator, that's not like worried about being overthrown. Um, they should have a Bitcoin position. And this is probably inevitable. Um, so, so we'll see where we're going to go here, but it's certainly a, a historic moment to talk. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, it's possible at some point that the degree to which countries are receptive to Bitcoin, whether they put it on their balance sheet, make it legal tender, or just have very, uh, accessible or not overbearing regulations becomes a kind of litmus test for their actual, you know, uh, degree of liberty or freedom that they espouse, you know, because I think one of the points that, I mean, in Bitcoin land, we say fix the money, fix the world a lot, right? Because, yeah. And that speaks to how influential the money is on so many other aspects of society and culture and politics, et cetera. And, you know, I don't do much orange pilling these days, but when I talk to people that are very close to me, like family members, I try to uh, instill in them, or I, I try to explain how interwoven and interconnected all these things are. Like the, what's happening in Russia is related to the money in some way. What happened with COVID, whatever your opinions on that it's are, all related are related to the, the money. It's all related exactly, to the money. Because you can't hand out checks if you can't print money, right? Correct. Or at least not to the same extent, not, not to the same extent. Long. Right. Yeah. And so there's, there's, there's far more limitations of what you can do. And can do. And when those limitations are removed, if you're a government, then you can do much more, well, but there are consequences. Yeah. Right? But let's so actually, just let me, yeah, go just ahead, let me go get ahead, this, this, this one yeah. off. So, uh, I think part of, we're talking about fracturing, right? And how, when does this system start to kind of shake, eat itself, fracture, and maybe, maybe break or start breaking. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the inevitable outcomes of this system in order to preserve itself is greater intrusion into people's finances, right? And so one, one manifestation of that could be confiscation. Now, right now we're seeing it in a way that's maybe fairly, I mean, it doesn't seem subtle, but maybe it's acceptable because we're saying, well, only the bad guys are being taken from, right? Mm -hmm. But I mean, another really prescient example that I think is going to set a precedent and wake a lot of people up is what happened to the truckers in Canada a few weeks ago. They're there peacefully demonstrating and their GoFundMe, uh, $10 million gets seized or denied access. Same with the mm -hmm. give, send, go money. And then even the Bitcoin that was donated ostensibly to be outside the, the realm of confiscation because of the way it was, uh, because of how it was executed, let's say, 
it seems as though even some of the Bitcoin was confiscated because it was in the possession of someone that was known to the authorities, all because of a protest that was taking place that was after the fact deemed unacceptable or, or for, you know, there was a reason given why this was legitimized. And so all I'm saying is that as this system fractures, I think we should expect more violation of property. And I think that's what's going to be a wake up call for individuals and nation states alike for the appeal of an inviolable form of property, i.e. Bitcoin. Yeah, I guess my three reactions are just simply on the on the nation state stage or level, you know, dollar hegemony um, is the status quo. But like what's happening is the U.S. government's realizing that when it spends its dollar hegemony, when it uses it, when it weaponizes it, um, it reduces its power. It's it's the, again, we sort of have this dilemma or paradox thing going on where like mm -hmm. They go ahead and they try to shut Russia out of the financial system. Well, guess what? Then Russia eventually is going to build its own system with China or whatever, and that's going to reduce the total amount of financial activity in the world happening in dollars. So it's like you know you can you can only you can't have you can only weaponize it, it so much. Yeah, right. I mean you can to an extent, right? There's always you know there was a time when it could, and that was really the the Iraq War was was the fruit of that time, which is which is tragic to think about. But that really came at the hyperpower moment when we could literally do whatever we wanted. Um, and, and sadly death and destruction was the result wanton death and destruction. I mean, really, I mean, so that's one piece. I think on the individual level, we have the CBDC argument, right? The central bank digital currency argument. And clearly this is something that governments are incentivized to want to, um, push towards now, whether they can implement it or not, it's unclear, but you know, what's certain is that they want to get rid of cash over time. They want, digital control over um base money basically they want to replace the base money that's currently in the hands of people in the form of paper notes and coins they want to replace that base money with with the digital base money that that allows them to do many things we of course you know know about the surveillance aspect of it and the opportunity for political blacklists, you know, the civil liberties part is well known and well thought out about and debated. What's less debated is the monetary piece. I mean, this would allow them to essentially do stimmy checks like with the, with the button press instead of through some process that takes weeks and, you know, it's all this direct depositing and a paperwork and all this stuff. Like it just would make it much more um, easy for them to do helicopter money basically. Um, so it also allows them to do in, uh, expiration dates on money. Um, it allows them to put negative interest rates on money. It basically, you know, it can, it, 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 it disincentivizes savings basically. So, so they can prevent the population from saving. They can force them to spend through CBDCs. So that's, a, that's an area we need to be looking out for. And then we talk about the fracturing of the system where we go from here. I think one of the more interesting things I've kind of realized through the last kind of six months of reading and research on this topic is that like internationally speaking, you know, the bond market is a corrective mechanism. Like, like normally for a country that's not the reserve currency, um, if they borrow too much and they, their country starts to appear, um, too indebted, the, the mark, the bond market is an intelligent thing and, and it, it can spot that. And it, it, and then, you know, what happens is, uh, people start selling, um, that debt, and the yield has to go up, like it becomes less valuable. And that country needs to needs to have a higher interest rate to attract 
um, money, right? This is what's happening inside Russia right now. You want to get a loan, the base rate's going to be like 20% or something like that. Um, and then at some point, like the curve breaks, like after a certain, like th there's no amount of money the Venezuelan government could pay you, John, to give it like a loan, right? Like in, in Bolivars, right? Because you're like, screw that. You know, maybe for rubles, there's a price. Like you, we saw today that, you know, Wall Street folks are still are going to go in and buy that cheap debt, things like that. So eventually, though, it breaks. Like a currency does fail, right, at a certain point, and you just don't really want it anymore. Um, but generally speaking, this bond market corrective mechanism is very important. It restrains governments. Like if they get too indebted, like they have to literally cut spending um, or and, and fix something or, or something has to change. Something's got to give, basically. Um, what the Fed figured out how to do, you know, as part of the U.S. government was was that they could, you know, do this thing that that um, governments first started to experiment with during wartime over the last hundred years and, and has become like basically par for the course over the last couple of decades in, in advanced democracies is is um, this idea of quantitative easing or buy, buying its own debt. And it was, I think, first done by the British in World War One. Uh, safe talks about this in the fiat standard and um it was done also by the americans later a few years later in world war one it was definitely done during world war ii um we actually did full yield curve control which means we were like uh, basically pinning the, the long-term uh treasury rates by by just buying by you know buying any you know buying all, you know any outstanding debt above a certain price or below a certain price and even that, sorry to interrupt, but even yeah, that ahead. is so poorly understood by your average oh, citizen. Totally. Like you, th those words make no, you just said nothing to, to people who don't have an understanding <laughs> yeah. of this, you know? No, and so yield why don't you curve, kind of, you know, yeah, I agree. Yield curve control, quantitative easing and zero interest rate policy. I mean, you know, okay. So basically the idea is that, um, very simply the U S government to pay for stuff has to, uh, issue, uh, uh, debt. Um, and you know, the private markets around the world uh, will pay the U.S. government, uh, you know, will we'll give the U.S. government real money, let's say, or you know, quote unquote cash in exchange for promises to pay, um, you know, with the expectation that they're going to make a little bit more money. They're going to get principal and interest, right? You get P&I. So, so um, you know, this is considered a safe thing to do because the U.S. government is, is considered the, the least likely government in the world to default, right? Or to say, we're not going to pay you back. Like many other governments have defaulted, Argentina being, you know, a common one. Probably Russia will, will default. There's, there's all kinds of defaults that have happened. Because the U.S. government is seen as like the least likely government to default, um, there's a high demand for its debt. Um, you know, but essentially like normally what would happen is if you go fight the Iraq war and then there's a great financial crisis, like U S debt rates are going to go up like, like, like over time, generally speaking, I know that there's right, this, like, like that uncertainty, like diminishes demand. It was like, Oh, well, maybe there's bigger yeah, problems exactly. than we think. And, and so demand goes down and rates are supposed to go up to, to yeah, when the, have when a new the, equilibrium. So make mm -hmm. it more attractive to buy the debt again. Right. Yeah. When the value of a bond goes down, essentially the rates go up. Right. So, right. Um, now there, there is a, there is a check on this in a way. And as much as again, the, the U S dollar is the world reserve currency, everybody wants it, everybody needs it, but let's just put it this way. Um, there's no way that the like bedrock interest rate for U S debt, um, would be 0.08% if the fed hadn't bought $9 trillion worth of government debt and, and securities over the, over, over the last 15 years. No way. It ha has an impact in the market. What would the what would the rate be 
on a two-year treasury in the United States or a one-year treasury or a 10-year treasury um, if the Fed hadn't bought $9 trillion? I mean, I don't know. Would it be 4 5 6 7%? I'm not sure. It certainly wouldn't be 0 to 1%, okay? So, you know, we don't know. There's no counterfactual. But what we know is that the Fed has basically taken this check on government power away. You know, again, normally, you know, rates would rise, um, and that would be a natural outcome of an indebted country. What quantitative easing does is it takes that check away and it allows the central bank to come in and just like eat the debt. Um, you know, with the out, you know, the 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 results are like obviously, in, you know, currency devaluation, inequality, all these other things. Um, but 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 it allows the government to keep borrowing, like at this endless rate, uh, with, with low interest rate, which which previously was like impossible in history. Like this is only possible in a fiat standard, right? So this activity of like issuing debt with one hand and buying it back with the other, again, allows governments to take on gargantuan debt um, with low interest rates because that interest rate is being artificially manipulated by the government yeah. itself. So that's kind of, that. that's something that was experimented with by the U.S. government during wartime in the past as an emergency thing. Um, and it had huge ramifications for the population. Again, like massive financial repression. You know, you have situations when this happens where the um, inflation rate is way higher than the interest rate. So, you know, holding cash or any sort of bond, like you end up losing a lot of value. Um, so this is happening now. We're now in like a period of financial repression, right? And, you know, uh, CPI is, is what, seven and a half percent or something mm. apparently. Um, and a basket of Costco goods is like 11%. And then, you know, you can go up from there depending on what you're trying yeah. to measure. Um, but, but, you know, fed funds rate is 0.08%. So, so, you know, you're not, you're not making money uh, on, on these government, even, even the 30 year is like, a couple percent. So, so you're, you're losing money all around. Right. So this is, this is a, in, you know, a broken system, I'd argue. And what it allow again, it allows the government to do is spend beyond its means essentially. Um, and if you think about it, what's interesting is in America, like, you know, we got, it's all, money's all about flows. Right. And we do have this flow coming in every year. And this year that flow was big. It was like $4 trillion. Okay. Of like flow that the government had come in through legitimate, well, legitimate, but, um, through, through real, real taxation, Most like actual yeah. money coming in as a, as a matter of payroll tax income, you know, all these different taxes, um, not borrowing, but actual taxes right now that like largely gets used to pay for like entitlements directly, right? Like things like social security, um, you know, you know, Medicare, whatever. So, so big, big government programs. What isn't paid for by, by that are, are, are certain more exotic programs, which, which have included over the last um, 20 years, like the Afghanistan war, the Iraq war, um, the operation inherent resolve, you know, activities in Syria and Libya, et cetera. So, so all these wars have been paid for entirely by borrowing. So again, they, they really depend on a low interest rate. If, if, if the U S government wasn't doing QE and wasn't like kind of pumping the price of its bonds and therefore lowering the yields, okay, then the cost to borrow for the U.S. would be astronomical and it wouldn't be able to afford this stuff, okay? So that's kind of the key point is that like governments in the modern fiat age post-71 have figured out this kind of magic trick where they can like keep rates down um, and continue to borrow um, 
and, and do things that, that, you know, are just disconnected from the population. And there's no, there's no like real clear answer to this. Like as I, as I tried to unpack in my latest piece, at least when it comes to war, um, which again is about 20% of what the U S government spends its money on. If you look at the 6 trillion figure, uh, for 2022, you have about 750 billion of, of straight general defense and warfare spending. And then you have a couple hundred billion, uh, that goes to veterans who fought in the forever wars, um, for their benefits. Um, and then you have money that is literally just interest payments on the money we borrowed for the wars. So this is above a trillion dollars. So you have, you know, getting close to about 20% of, of the whole budget is spent on this stuff. Um, and, you know, how do you fix the issue, uh, which is really eroding democracy, in my opinion? I mean, there, there are two, like, traditional fixes. Uh, one would be conscription, um, you know. It's just not going to happen. We're not going to go back to a draft. I mean, it's not only is it morally dubious, um, but no one would support it. I mean, there's no way our government could ever do that. I don't think, um, unless, unless look, unless there was like an annihilation style thing happening, like an existential risk. Okay. Then maybe, but if it's not existential, it's not happening. So that's off the table. War taxes would, would, would be another one. So in 68 or 67 LBJ passed, uh, essentially a war tax and it, and it was like, it showed up on your taxes and you knew about it. And that was hugely unpopular. And he, he <laughs> later announced he would not run for a second term partly as a result of frustration on that, on the spending for Vietnam. So war taxes have been hugely unpopular ever since. Scholarship shows they reduced the popularity of a war by about 20%. So it's like, governments aren't going to do that. So that means we're like stuck in this system of just infinite spending, of which Cicero said, um, basically the sinews of war, infinite money. I thought that was a, a conclusion he could even figure out 2000 years ago. Right. And, and all these thinkers, whether it was Smith, Adam Smith or John Stuart Mill, or even Keynes himself, John Maynard Keynes, they, they all thought it was bad, generally speaking, to borrow for war. Um, especially if it caused interest rates to rise, they all talked about this. Um, and they said that they essentially said it had to be supplemented with taxation. Is essential. So now we don't supplement the wars with taxation. We figured out a trick to just spend, spend, spend while keeping interest rates low. And that's, you know, essentially QE or, or perhaps you want to call it debt monetization. Um, but this again is only possible on the fiat standard. So um, if, we, if we do move to the Bitcoin standard, which, you know, many of us believe will happen one way or another, um, then, then it introduces new kind of, uh, a lot of new, um, uh, behaviors and interplays like, and, 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 and ramifications like, you know, like governments, again, you have $4 trillion coming in an in income for the U S state right now. That would be the same in a Bitcoin standard. Like you'd have 4 trillion. Now, um, if you're going to have a $6 trillion budget, the U S government's going to have to borrow for that trillion and a half, right? On a Bitcoin standard. Um, the, the, the price for borrowing is not going to be zero. There's going to be a price in a Bitcoin standard and maybe it's 5% or 10% or it's going to be whatever the global market is, is willing to pay. Um, and that's going to reduce the amount that we borrow. Okay. It, it, it's going to mean that like, we're going to live within our means as a country. We can do borrowing. We can probably do a lot more borrowing than Malawi, like, right. No matter what, because we're the U S and we're more trustworthy. Right. But we can't do the kind of borrowing we're doing today. So what that means is there's going to be a triage. Um, we're going to have to sit around and determine what to cut and what not to cut. We don't have to have those conversations today. Um, we spend as much as we want essentially. And what the MMTers don't realize is the war piece. 
they don't realize that the war piece is the piece that, that doesn't get cut and, and they don't like to talk about it. Kelton doesn't mention Iraq or Afghanistan in the book. So what do you think, like, even in our very imperfect democracy, at the end of the day, the representatives do generally represent the interests of the of their constituents because they, they're trying to get voted in, back into office, right? This, this sort of works, right? It's like, in a way, I know it's very corrupted, but um, it does sort of work, right? And, you know, what are they going to cut first? I mean, definitely the exotic war in some other place that nobody even knows about and is only enriching military contractors. That is of zero interest to the average person in Kansas. Like that is, so my thesis essentially is that in a Bitcoin standard, you're still going to have fiat currency, at least, you know, for the, for the first era of the Bitcoin standard, you're still going to have bar state borrowing. You're still going to have bonds. You're still going to have a bond market. You're still going to have all these things, but there's going to be limits and constraints and one of the first things to be constrained will be these like undemocratic forever wars. So that's kind of the, the thesis of, of, of my paper. And I mean, you know, it's, it's speculation because we don't have a counterfactual. Um, but, but I do think it will come to the, the events I'm talking about will come to pass in terms of, I do think the monetary system will change. And I do think we're going to go to a Bitcoin standard. And I, yeah. I, you know, I think that's going to be tremendously healthy for democracy. I couldn't agree more. I mean, one, you mentioned how the bond market is supposed to carry with it a certain signal, right, by which you can orient economic and financial decisions. And, you know, a visual that I often get when I'm assessing what's happening is, you know, basically we're redlining the RPMs or they're redlining the RPMs, mm -hmm. but on the dashboard, it's just registering a one, right? We're, we're not... <laughs> The, the, yeah. the, the information we need is not coming through. Oh, and, yeah, the you know, information is totally broken. Yeah. Right. And, and so how long can that persist? And of course, now, topic of discussion in so many places is they're in, they're in between a rock and a hard place, right? There's so much mm -hmm. debt built up that if you, and inflation has started to peak its ugly head, that if you raise rates, well, your debt burden becomes increasingly overbearing. Uh, but, and you, you know, maybe you tank the economy at the same time, or at least burst some bubbles. But if you don't, the whole coordinating function of the money that allows the economy to function at all is increasingly under stress because of inflation, right? And of course, it's very politically unpopular as well and all those things. So, you know, and then you mentioned in your piece that most countries, once, once they exceed 130% debt to GDP, 50 yeah. out of 51 have defaulted, right? Japan's yeah. the exception and they're the biggest creditor nation in the world. Yeah. Uh, and so, so many things seem to be screaming like we're getting close. I mean, just as an anecdote, I'm sure this is the same in, in the U.S. and many countries around the world today. But I think last year in Canada, the average home price went up by 35 yes. percent because, you know, th this has been one of the ways to hide this, right? Push it to asset prices and not yes. consumer prices. And that's, you know, that's again, that that creates a disparity that exacerbates the disparity. And that itself becomes a social problem at a certain point. And I think we're getting pretty close to that being like a very pronounced social problem. So all of these different uh, deleterious consequences of a system like this are now starting to emerge. And the final point I'd like to make that we've been kind of discussing is not just that this system allows for the funding of such wars, but I think it, or, or nefarious activities by governments, mm -hmm. but it necessitates them, right? Because let's say you're in a desperate situation like this today you're incentivized to make war in order to maybe coerce other countries to buy your debt or to, you know, like it, that's the very mechanism by which you might get yeah. out of the troubled situation. Yeah. And so not only, not only can we fund things without people knowing about it, but the very survival of the system necessitates ever more of this stuff that we'd probably all agree is bad. 
Well, let me bring it full circle to what you just said. Um, the U.S. has defaulted twice in the last hundred years, uh, 30, 33 and 71. We literally defaulted on the value that we had promised the international, international system that we would pay. Were for, they explicit? For I know seven, 71 wasn't. Was 31? I mean, I mean 33, uh, the, do- the dollar was devalued by something like 40%. Um, right. This is when but- FDR... Uh, forced Americans to exchange gold for promises to pay. Right. Um, I mean, nobody owned up to it in that way. Right. Well, people don't like to say that America has defaulted on its debt, but technically these were absolutely defaults. There's no question. Um, 71 was even more obvious. I mean, Nixon literally went on TV and said, we're not going to, sorry, we're not going to give you the gold that we said we'd give you. That's literally a default. I mean, he's defaulting and it caused a devaluation, a massive devaluation of the dollar. I mean, it, the dollar immediately tanked like 10% and eventually it tanked 50% against the German mark, uh, you know, over the first five years of the seventies. So huge, huge devaluations. We've seen dollar defaults. Um, but I, what I would say is that like, as the gold standard, you know, the gold standard went from the gold standard to the gold exchange standard, right? So you basically had the Bretton Woods system was kind of like a gold exchange standard, right? Everybody used dollars thinking that they could redeem them for gold at a fixed rate, right? That was broke at 71. But even before it broke, people knew it was going to break. So there was, there was a run on the dollar basically. And LBJ had to basically strong arm the Germans and the West Germans and say, listen, if you don't, if you don't buy more of our debt so that we can you know, support Israel and, and go fight a Vietnam or whatever, um, we're going we're gonna to pull out our troops. This is literally what happened. I mean, you could read about it. Um, so there was coercion there. And then there was coercion in the early 70s um, where after the act, when it actually did, we did default and, and the dollar did start plummeting. We, we, it was no longer attached to gold. Um, and we were just printing money essentially to fight in Vietnam. Um, the Cold War peak paranoia, all that stuff, you know, Nixon, et cetera. Uh, we, we, Kissinger was tasked to figure out a solution. I detailed this in my petrodollar article, but basically like part of the geopolitical backdrop was that these OPEC states had, had become independent nations. It's a sort of post-colonial independence. And, and they had just, they were like a wash in so much cash because the price of oil went way up uh, during this inflationary period. And, you know, essentially at least versus the dollar. And, um, we made this deal where we, where we basically went over there and we said, listen, we'll protect you and we'll sell you weapons, but you have to price oil sales in dollars and you have to recycle the dollars you earn back into us debt. So we right. managed to figure out a way to, to get the Germans to buy. And then we managed to figure out a way to get the Arabs to buy. And then the, in mid eighties, the oil price tank, like tanked and, and the Arabs were no longer buying our debt or at least anywhere close to as much as they were previously. So we went to the Japanese, the new rising power, second world largest economy in the world. And we said, no, you guys have to buy our debt. And this was literally what was negotiated at the pause accord. And then about 15 years later, we went to the Chinese and said, okay, you can come into WTO 2001. Um, and then you're going to be buying our debt too. And then the Chinese bought a trillion dollars of American debt between 2004 and 2011. So, so like until like right around the great financial crisis, you had four decades of American monetary policy where we had moved off of the gold standard. And we, we were like, just basically like finding somebody to be the marginal buyer of our debt so that we could continue growing our like 
economy in this bizarre way. Um, and only able to do that because of the monopoly. On yeah. And again, there's no course, counterfactual. We don't know what would have happened if there was no German buyer or no Arab buyer or no Japanese oh, sure. buyer or but no they Chinese say, buyer. Hey, buy this debt because of the military strength. Right. So that that element of implicit or explicit coercion is right. Is so all, what I was is, getting is at is like the, the, the Arab piece, which was the key piece, securing the U.S. dollar as the world's monetary standard and really ousting the pound. I mean, really, it was the 70s. That this all like became crystal clear that the euro dollar system would be dollars and not not something else, meaning that the international banking and financial system would be pegged to the dollar. This was all solidified in the 70s. Um, and it was largely on the back of this 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 like military deal. Um, and we've had to protect that. Right. So going to Iraq, like one of the things that I propose or, or argue is that, you know, the petro euro was like a threat to the system. Like, again, we need people to be buying our debt and, 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 you know, we need that debt to be in such high demand that its rates are low so we can borrow more and fight more and do more stuff. Right. So if the petro euro is going to emerge and people are going to start doing energy markets in the euro, there's going to be less demand for dollar debt, less demand for dollars. That's a big problem. So that to me was like actually like a, quite a clear reason to go in and get rid of Saddam. Um, indeed, it, it, I mean, it, it, it it, fi it fixed it, meaning like, to, you know, as soon as we invaded and got rid of them, they, they went back to selling the oil in dollars. So they'd sold billions of billions of dollars in, in, in quote unquote dollars in euros before then. The petro euro did exist. We killed off the petro euro. People forget. I mean, at the time, the euro was seen as a serious rival to the dollar, like late 90s, early 2000s. Like you go back, you read the financial media. It was not a tinfoil hat theory. People were like, dude, the, the euro is a serious contender to the dollar. Um, we managed to like- I remember Giselle Bunchen asking for her uh, salary in, in euros instead of US dollars was like this big thing at the time. Like totally you know, indicative of what you're saying. Yeah. So, you know, Japan was a threat. We got rid of them through the- um, Plaza Accord. And then we managed to like, I don't know if you've ever seen Princes of the Yen, but you should watch this incredible movie about how U.S. Mm. Mac economic advisor advisors basically blew up the Japanese economy. It's the most amazing thing. So we got rid of the Japanese threat and we got rid of the Euro European threat through Iraq, essentially, in my, in my opinion. And then, and then we were coasting, but you know, eventually you run out of steam and you know, the rest of the world between the combination of the overstretch of the Iraq war and Afghanistan wars, um, which, which turned us into like this massive deficit spending country, um, and the great financial crisis. I mean, that's, that's when some of these other governments were like, wait a second. So you saw the government start to accumulate gold. Luke, Luke Groman does a great job describing all this in his writing and research, but, um, you saw basically big countries like Japan and China slow their purchasing of treasuries or even start to dishoard them or reduce their stock. Um, Again, China uh, bought tons of debt in that first decade of the 2000s and since then has reduced its, its total amount. Um, so, you know, the world was apprehensive about this and it has been for some time. And the events of the last few weeks or, or the last few days are, you know, re really, you know, making people think hard about about this. I mean, you know, ironically, there's the, there's like a par paradox where because the dollar, you know, until the day the dollar no longer is the reserve, it, it, it will have this interesting thing where like during crises, it, its value goes up. Like it's in the Dixie yeah. or whatever, this like index of the dollar versus other currencies. It's like in March, 2020, like now, like at panic moments, like people are forced to kind of go to the dollar, right? Until they aren't, right? So th there's, you know, there's a gradually then suddenly thing here. Um, so we will see, but I think what's, what's 
what's going to break that trend of just, oh, we'll just go to the dollar is foreign nations realizing that they should have a different kind of savings, um, that they should probably have a savings that's not in a currency that can just be frozen by a competitor. Like that doesn't make any sense geopolitically, realistically, like that's just dumb. So they've been chafing at this and they've been frustrated by the system. Um, and I think they're going to help create a new one. And, you know, I think the thing I, I just want to say is that, um, I think that, um, again, very proud of American values and the values that America was founded on. I think it's an incredible document. The, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, all these things. Um, really, really inspiring. Um, but the dollar system wasn't created by the Founding Fathers. The Founding Fathers were very skeptical of a centrally planned economy. I mean, you go back, you look at Washington, you look at Jefferson. Um, ironically, Hamilton, the one who pulled it off, is, is lionized today through the through the play and everything. But, he, you know, he's really the one that, that, was, that was sort of most against the sort of Jeffersonian spirit, right? Um, in many ways, they obviously had famous feuds, et cetera. Um, the, the, the point here being like, Kissinger and Nixon invented the current dollar system, you know, not, not the founding fathers. So, um, yeah. I think we need to be open to the fact that we can be super pro American, um, and, and, and anti-dollar. Like, I think that that's not a, like that, that's a coherent thought in your head. Like, I think we can realize that the dollar system has delivered enormous riches to a handful of people and in, in the United States and has allowed people in certain sectors to get unfathomably wealthy but for the average person, it's not been so great over the last three, four decades. Um, and you know, it's, it's, we, we are in this position where 4% of the world's population controls currency for everybody else. So, you know, I think we could have a more fair world where like, we're all equal players. And I think America dominates in that world continues to dominate. I mean, just think about everything about, um, you know, the, the, the opportunities, the, 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 the people, the, the companies, all these things. Um, I think we do very well in the Bitcoin world, especially because the, the value, the, the values are reverberating with, with what we're, what, what we're founded on in terms of free speech, property rights, open capital markets. I mean, think about China. The yuan can never be a, a, a reserve currency for the simple, uh, reason that it's, it's, it's exchange rate is so rigid. It's not like a floating, you know, thing. It can't be freely traded on the international markets. Um, these dictators don't have, they could never be the international, uh, reserve currency, um, in a modern world. Uh, it's impossible. So, but Bitcoin could be, and, and again, I think America does well in that world. Yeah. I mean, there's a few things I want to touch on there. I think Powell recently said, perhaps for the first time, I didn't actually watch it, that there can be two reserve currencies, right? And this is quite a departure from, you know, maybe the rhetoric that they've been uh, using before. Yeah. But to the point about like China can never, the yuan can never be a reserve currency. I mean, I understand the reasons why you would make that argument. But if we fall back to what we've been exploring about the role of military supremacy in coercing the use of a currency, I can certainly see a future where China is the dominant military power and it does the very same thing. Now, maybe by that time we're on a Bitcoin standard and it doesn't yeah. really matter, but you know, to, to maybe put a pin on this aspect of, uh, of the role of coercion and force in perpetuating this system, the thing that, that uh, you know, I fear is that this system, as we've been discussing, preserves itself through the use of coercion, saying, oh, you know, we need, we need to use coercion to get J Japan, Germany, Saudi Arabia, whomever, to buy our debt to keep this 
rolling over to keep this thing going in various forms, hard power, soft power, et cetera. But when this system is backed into a corner and it most needs to preserve itself, logically, I kind of think, well, then it's going to ratchet up the degree to which it deploys or uses or engages force in order to preserve itself. Because that's always what it does. It's just kind of a matter of degree and circumstance that dictates it, what, how that looks, what that looks like. And today, we, you know, it really seems to be backed into a corner. So if we're operating on this premise that it uses its capacity for force to preserve itself, mm -hmm. what, you know, and, and if, if you at all look at history in terms of what happens when dominant powers get into trouble in terms of, you know, uh, at home financial and social strife, typically, you know, a scapegoat is uh, erected, real or otherwise, and war on a larger scale than normal is is t is is enacted right that is engaged yeah. in and uh you know that that's the thing that i think myself and i'm sure a lot of bitcoiners fear in this day and age like as we clearly something has to give something has to change in the monetary order we're well, all is. hoping wait, wait, yeah. Moto happened. no of you course know? and we're, we're yeah. all hoping that you know it increasingly becomes bitcoin but i think you'd be naive to think that it's just going to be, you know, from, you know, hopping off from one to well, the other because I, it's so ingrained. Yeah, there is almost some, I don't want to use the word intelligent design, but there's almost like a fate here where the cypherpunks existed because of something. They were a reactionary force to something. And totally, that, something totally. that something was the surveillance state and, and total digital control of our lives. And if you go back and you read them in the 70s and 80s, this was the driving force towards creating the uh, cryptography that makes it all possible right at the end of the day. And, you know, they all, they, as I've charted in some of my writing, they, they, once they could figure out how to communicate privately, they were like, the next thing we got to do is e-cash. It's absolutely essential. Otherwise we're screwed. Um, they knew this a long time ago and Satoshi figured out all the pieces and managed to do it. But you know, that, that Bitcoin is a product, is a product of, is a reactionary force. I mean, it's, it's an, it's an outcome of the system almost in a way, absolutely. you know what I mean? Absolutely. It's almost oh, totally. like a, and it, absolutely. If you go back and you listen to the, it's the guy, the architect in the matrix. It's like, it's inevitable. It's an inevitability. You know what I mean? Right, it's like right. an inevitability of the system, right? So that it would happen. And it did. And I, I think we're great. I'm grateful. And we're fortunate. I think that it happened now and not in like 20 years, like, um, or rather, you know, in 2008 and not now, let's say, um, mm -hmm. But it happened and people have an, uh, an escape and they have a shield to defend themselves against all this craziness, um, whether they be in Russia or can Cuba or Palestine or wherever you are in Los Angeles, doesn't matter. And it's going to be a powerful check on government power, just as, you know, the bond market was a check on government power and got diffused, right? Um, just as the traditional kind of way currencies work in the world with trade, where if, if your currency gets, you know, too valuable, your, your, your trade gets uncompetitive. Um, and, and it's this natural seesaw effect that happens throughout the world that, that was, you know, observed back in the wealth of nations you know, hundreds of years ago, that, that was diffused by like the, you know, the dollar becoming the reserve currency, right. The Triffin dilemma stuff. Um, so there's been like norm, the normal checks on us, what a state can do have been diffused. Well, here, here we have a check that can't, I don't think can be diffused. I mean, gold was another one of these things that restrained governments in some ways, but it was able to be diffused. And I, I, you know, I detail that in my super imperialism piece, but gold was demonetized by the governments of the world, mainly the U S government in the end. 
um, forcefully and, um, and they got rid of it. They managed to centralize it and they got rid of it. But guess what? Bitcoin is held by users. Its rule set is held by users. It's, you know, totality of Bitcoin is held by users. Um, and, and, um, I don't think that's going to change in the near future. And, and that's very, very powerful. So basically this conversation has been a, a discussion of how the traditional or historical checks on government power from a financial point of view have been overcome in different ways, whether they be through, uh, you know, fiat, fiat currency or through quantitative easing, um, et cetera, et cetera. And they've led to kind of, you know, um, I would say kind of problematic, uh, growth of, of government activity, uh, to say the least, if you're a Yemeni or an Iraqi, let's say, <laughs> um, that would be putting it mildly, but, but maybe here we get a check on government power. That's a healthy check. And, and that puts kind of more power back in the hands of the people. And, and I guess where I would disagree with a lot of Bitcoiners is I think it's actually compatible with, with democracy. And I, I don't mean democracy in like the, the formalities of how it exists today. I just mean a system really true to the word. Democracy means rule of the people and not, and not monarchy or, you know, oligarchy or whatever rule of a few or rule of a King or whatever you want to do. Um, mm. I do feel like, the Bitcoin standard pushes us towards a system where the average person has a little more say and a little more skin in the game. And maybe, maybe that is re realized through m more kind of localized structures of power. Maybe that's the case. I know a lot of Bitcoiners believe in that, that we're going to head towards more of like a city state kind of world. And maybe that's true, but in any, in any event, the point is that it sort of hints at this future where power is a little more localized and a little less centralized whether that be in a country or globally. And I think, think that ends up being really, really good for people. Yeah, I, uh, I totally agree with that. And I think, you know, what, what we're always dealing with, you know, somewhat of the, the narrative of history is what are the effective limitations on power that exist that can be availed of, right? And as we said, like, you, 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 establish, you, you think there's uh, usefulness in one limitation and you, you engage it, and it becomes established and then maybe it becomes transcended like the gold standard over time. It's like, oh, well, that worked for a while in certain places, but ultimately those limitations could be transcended and, and here we are. And I think, you know, this is the promise of Bitcoin is that its limitations seem so ironclad. And, you know, one of those might be its inviolability in terms of the, the, the property relation that you have with it. And that can be a tremendous limitation on the disparity or imbalance of power that previously or, or heretofore has uh, led to circumstances that we'd be critical of, like you just described. And so maybe we will get a more evening out of the disparity between power and, and wealth and that kind of thing. But I, I want to I ask you a, a question kind of on that note. Yeah. But first, I, I want to preface it with, with some context. You mentioned, um, you know, the ideals uh, the founding ideas and ideas, ideals and values of America. And I think we'd all agree they were they're brilliant, right? And the, mm -hmm. the challenge is execution. And because yeah. we're fallible people, because we're imperfect people, both mm -hmm. as individuals and collectives, we can never live up to the ideal, strive as we might. And, you know, I, during the Iraq war in Afghanistan, and ever since I've been, I guess, politically conscious about this stuff, I've agreed with that, right? I've, I've, I've thought those were great ideals uh, to strive for. And then I think about someone in the Middle East who gets, you know, 
I hate to keep using this horrible example, but gets drone bombed, right? Like a, a, a wedding ceremony where there's a potential terrorist and the whole 50 people get bombed. And it's like this insanely, unimaginably tragic event. And I think about maybe the surviving relatives of some of those people, like a young guy my age who's a relative of one of those people. I could never, I, I, like it must be almost impossible to see the country from whence that attack came as anything other than deplorable and evil from that point on, right? Because look at, look at the result of, of those actions. Look what happened from it. And so in this sense, the, exec the executor of the ideals, the, the, the entity through which the ideals are, are meant to be exacted or, or acted out is so consequential. And this is how we kind of corrupt them. And in Bitcoin, I feel like it may be an instantiation of certain ideals, liberty and, and freedom being one of them, uh, that can't so, is not so easily tainted because it's, it's not really an actor, it's a tool, right? It doesn't have intent. And so I feel like that mm -hmm. is something that more and more people could rally around and appreciate the ideals that it represents because of, the, because of how it allows them to be established in one's life, absent the baggage of someone carrying them out or imposing them in, in some way or the other. And so I, I want to, this is a, <laughs> coming to a question about human rights ultimately, but what do you believe, you know, so now that we have this system with certain ideals instantiated in it, which permits a property relation that's never existed before and all the limitations on, let's say, government that that may in the future permit and in many cases now does permit on certain scales, what is the relationship between that and human rights? Because oftentimes the, the, the question with human rights is, well, are you kind of like a negative human rights person or a positive human rights person? And it seems to me that like the baseline is don't violate me or my property. Like you can't violate my body. You can't violate my property. If mm -hmm. we can establish those things, then we have a pretty good chance of developing a, a peaceful, prosperous society. Uh, now the positive rights people might say like, I need healthcare and housing and all that mm -hmm. jazz. And maybe that's a totally other different discussion, but yeah. Bitcoin seems to deliver one of the highest objectives of human rights, which is making perhaps the most condensed form of your non-bodily property inviolable. And that would seem to be a massive boon for the idea and the execution of human rights. So I know that's kind of long-winded, but I'm sure there's enough there for you to to, to, no, to I mean, I, I agree. Chew, chew Bitcoin, into. Is, Bitcoin is freedom uh, and, you know, freedom money and, and ultimately freedom. Um, <clears throat> I mean, freedom is such a abstract concept, right? I mean, it, what does it really mean? I mean, we could argue for a thousand years about it. Um, what but, do you think it means? Well, um, that's a, a, you know, big question, but generally speaking, I think civil liberties do a good job of, of encapsulating what, what, you know, mod freedom is for a modern human being in our world, uh, the right to speak and the right to associate ourselves freely and the right to, um, participate in our government if we wish and, and the right to not be detained or tortured. Uh, uh, basically these negative, uh, rights, these restrictions on government power to me are, are what, what are freedoms, uh, properly understood. Um, it doesn't mean that I don't think that positive, rights are, are, are can, can be good in some ways. Um, I mean, a lot of classic liberal thinkers thought that we should figure out ways to make safety nets for, for vulnerable people. And 
I think that that's a big conversation that we should have. And, and I would agree. And I'd want to explore that. Um, but at the end of the day, freedom to me is, <clears throat> is, is, is about being able to restrain or withstand arbitrary government power. And I just don't think there's a technology or mechanism that does that better than Bitcoin. I mean, everything else can be uh, canceled or fucked with or whatever. Um, so Bitcoin's like the one thing that's not going to get canceled. And and your look, your access to it can be you. They can still throw you in a prison cell, and right. you know they can still wrench attack and all these things. But like the system lives on. You know what I mean? It's like Putin can do X, and Biden can do X, and Xi Jinping can do X, and whatever but the system survives and it, it starts to shape the world around it. Like, like on the micro level, it's not perfect and it doesn't fit, you know, Bitcoin fixes this as a, as an inside joke here, but it does fix a lot of things like specifically. And, and it does change the world. I mean, I think over time, this will be really clear. Like it just changes the way we interact with each other. Um, I think both at the micro and at the macro levels. Uh, especially at the nation state level, which is I think what we're going to really see in the next decade or so. And, and I think that it's interesting times because very few people would even entertain that idea. And there was a great uh, podcast the other day on Bloomberg about uh, the idea of weaponization of uh, FX reserves and inside and outside money. And um, I found myself agreeing with all of it, except for the fact that they didn't mention Bitcoin at all. And they talked about gold as the solution. And I'm just kind of like, wow, man. I mean, imagine not thinking about not realizing that Bitcoin's going to be the thing. I mean, wow. So, so we're just kind of early, right? But like everything's lined up for, for us to move in this direction. And I think it's really positive again, because it's going to result in a world where everybody's kind of on a monetary equal playing field and no one government or power will have arbitrary control over everybody else from that perspective. And when you use mathematics and words and speech to own your Bitcoin, I mean, you really do own it. Like you, you control whether it moves and to whom it moves. Um, and that's super powerful today. I mean, it, it's super, super powerful. No one can, it's not just that no one can seize it or confiscate it. I mean, you get into conversations about folks, uh, who work, um, with Ethereum. And it's true that MetaMask has encouraged tons of self-custody, right? Of like, of like digital assets. Right. But that's kind of only part of it, right. Is this idea of, of like mechanically the self-custody because, because if you do it the right way, I ideally it prevents freezing, right. And confiscation. But the other piece that's so, so important is the monetary policy. Like Bitcoin can't be diluted or devalued and every other digital asset can be right. Regardless of whether you can custody it yourself or not with a private key. Um, so the two of them together really make it freedom. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And I'd actually, you know, dig in a little bit deeper here and, and maybe it's a little too deep for the amount of time we have left, but you know, it, it makes me think that and, and this kind of goes to the sovereign individual, which I see on your on the wall behind you, which analyzes how the state of technology influences the you know the balance of power, the logic of violence, as as they call it. And you know, if this thing really is such a limitation, I mean, it will very much dictate what can and can't happen, and that's the appeal of it, right? Like I can I can store my 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 wealth in Bitcoin, and it's I'm pretty much dictating that you can't confiscate it, as you said, you can throw me in a a prison cell, but you can't confiscate it. And as a result, like it, it, it kind of starts to dictate what politics and what rights look like. Because at the end of the day, what we've been exploring this whole time is, and, and, and this is a little bit harsh, but rights are basically 
the things that you can defend or uphold or limit the encroachment or or violation of right i mean and th this is the kind of the, the story of of politics is like this is when you know maybe maybe this is how you guys determine when you need to place your focus on a situation or a nation state or a dictator it's like they're clearly violating these things right the, the, these things so they're not they're not immutable, I guess is what I'm saying. They're nice ideas and we've collectively agreed that we should uphold them to the extent that we can, but history is kind of uh, littered with examples of yeah. I mean, them uh, not being I, upheld, push comes to shove. But this is a thing that maybe we'll be able to upheld, uphold them in a certain domain. Yeah, it's all about the alignment of incentives and that's what I talk about in my Trojan horse argument, but like basically like Bitcoin forces you to care about freedom even if you hate freedom. Uh, or at least it forces you to support it in a way, right? Because if you're mining Bitcoin or you're holding Bitcoin or you're buying Bitcoin or earning Bitcoin or using it in whatever way, you're supporting it. You're supporting the right. network. You're supporting the growth. And, you know, you could care very, very little for human rights. And it doesn't matter because you're strengthening this freedom tool for everybody else. And I think that's just so, so incredibly powerful. And no other asset has that mechanism in it. This um, number go up, you know, it's just like so, so important. Um, that there's no other asset that can provably have a credible monetary policy that's not going to be changed by its users. <clears throat> no other asset has that. No other digital asset has this um, um, mechanism. This uh, again, this kind of just the interplay um, between between the different kinds of users it has, um, and that will really distinguish it. And I think, in the end you know, be that thing that can align incentives in a positive way that we've been missing for a long time, um, where people are driven by their own self-interest, which is great. And, and they don't need to fake care or empathy about people around the world by just being in Bitcoin and being involved in Bitcoin and growing Bitcoin. Like you're doing probably what matters for you and whether you like it or not, you're helping out a lot of other people. And, and there's just not that many, other things that work like that in the world today. So, so no, I'm that's definitely that's, bullish. That's pretty on that. special. Yeah. yeah. I got, I got two more for you, Alex. And sure. this one, I probably should have asked at the beginning because it is, I mean, but this is what I was getting at with the last question. And yeah, sure. given, given that relationship between the tools at our disposal for upholding the ideals and rights that we, through the course of history, evolve and determine that we should have, and that lead to a, a prosperous, flourishing society, let's say, um, what, like what's your definition of a human right and where, or rather, where do they come from ultimately? So I, I, cause I just, just to preface that a little bit more, I just made the case that they are somewhat technologically determined, right? At least mm -hmm. how we uphold them, if not the, 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 the idea of them. But in your opinion, you know, this is your life's work. Where do, where do our human rights come from? Yeah. I mean, look, they're aspirations. I mean, I think that they're aspirational in the eye of the beholder and different, you know, different populations will have slightly different versions of them, but there is this kind of like fundamental set of human freedoms that, that generally speaking, people strive for and aspire to, regardless of whether they're Chinese or Iranian or Cuban or American or whatever. And free speech is certainly one of them. Um, freedom to associate with others peacefully um, you know, freedom to, to own something, to have private property in some, some level is something that's sort of a basic human, um, interest. Uh, and you know, it, it, you, we, in the electronic age, we can go on to, you know, some level of privacy people want. And, you know, we, we can talk about, um, 
you know, the ability to, to, to trade and transact and it starts to grow from there. Um, but generally speaking, they're like a set of super basic civil liberties, um, that, that, that are the description of humans as a creative being like, like we're going to go out, we're going to do things with the world and we don't want to, you know, be arbitrarily impeded, um, or punished. Um, but like, these are all aspirational things that are semantic and that, that are descriptions of behavior. But Bitcoin's different because Bitcoin's mathematics <laughs> and Bitcoin like is not, it's just a different kind of way to conceive of human rights. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's just like hard science. Like it, it, it is math. Like it, it, I've been in these dialogues with people about the money that the Canadian truckers raised and they're like, well, in the end, like, um, you know, whatever the truckers didn't distribute is going to get confiscated or whatever through the legal system and the Marieva injunction, et cetera, et cetera. And it's like, it's like, yeah, but the key difference is that like in the centralized financial system, the Canadian government was just able to like freeze the GoFundMe, like with a phone call with a button that's mm. just like extra legal, let's say, um, human rights violation. Okay. Right there. Um, now they couldn't do that with the Bitcoin. They had to actually do the work and go find the people and by the time they got the guy or whatever, he had already distributed a whole bunch of the Bitcoin. It's all gone. Like, what are they going to do now? Right. So it's like it, it prevents, you know, excess of government power. I mean, it literally, you know, physically, scientifically um, checks uh, this idea of authoritarianism, which is why it's so compelling. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the point, right? It, it preserves certain rights better than, they've ever been preserved before. And that's part yes. of the reason why it's so valuable. Do you think that human rights evolve? You know, like think of us like at caveman days, right? We, we haven't abstracted ourselves or even have enough self-awareness or have the lexicon to articulate these ideas about our worth, right? Our, our creative worth, let's say, and the rights we should have. Do you think these are things that evolve over time? Um, of course. I mean, you would like the biggest yeah. questions when we got five minutes yeah, left. Yeah, I, I mean, know, no, but... just like, well, quite obviously in the, in the digital world, things are different, right? So when give you an example in the seventies, when the U S government, uh, was trying to figure out laws around money, um, you know, we passed the bank secrecy act, which at the time, you know, you read the, the, the dissent of the justices who voted against it or whatever, um, at the Supreme court, at the federal court, like they, they, they voiced concerns, but remember, at the time, money was largely non-electronic. I mean, we were talking literal bank deposits, bank notes, coins, and checks, okay? Where this idea of this KYC AML regime like barely existed. Now, today, it's like so, so, so different, right? Like, then when you paid for something, there was just no real ability for the merchant to know much about you unless they physically asked you, like, or had you write down or, or took a note of some kind. Today, when you buy something, you just reveal like all this information about yourself. So I do think that rights evolve over time. And we, it was a necessity in the digital world to invent cryptography, um, to protect privacy. Like that was, that was like a human rights innovation, like super, super key. Um, but in turn, we've also invented Bitcoin, right? Like, which is also super, super key um, to protect ourselves. So I think that human rights do evolve. Um, I mean, maybe not the concepts at the end of the day, like the, the core concepts, but the, ways, what I'm the, ways, the ways that we protect the concepts um, evolve. I, I, I do think the concepts evolve though. I mean, in a way, like at one point, like, you know, 
child sacrifice was seen as like normal or whatever. So I, I think that like, you know, slavery was normal. Well, you know, like, like things do change over time. That's just public, you know, that's more like uh, public uh, Overton window acceptability of things, right. That changes over time. So um, I mean, think about gay rights, you know, like that, that's a debate that changes over time. Like, um, uh, so, or, or, or even just religious freedom, right? Like, like these things are, these things change over time for the public. Um, uh, so we, we're headed in a particular direction of being like a little more open and diverse than we were a thousand years ago, certainly, um, and more yeah. cosmopolitan. Um, but it, you know, at the end of the day, that's, 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 a, that, you know, those are social norms, right? In the, I guess human rights are social norms then to answer your question, but the ways that we have to protect those, those ideals, uh, you know, in, as we entered the electronic age had to be invented. Like, like if we didn't have cryptography or Bitcoin, like it'd be really tough to protect human rights in the 21st century. So, so there'll be more inventions. I mean, the printing press was a version of this was a kind of a, a pre digital version of, of what I'm describing. Um, an invention that checked government power and protected human rights to some extent. Yeah. I, it's an interesting question. I, and I think like everything like consciousness itself, it evolves. Right. But I do think, you know, whether we're talking about privacy and your ownership of your own data or slavery, your ownership of your own body, you know, one of the core ones that perhaps will never change, and maybe it's one of the most fundamental, is the right to your own body and property, right? And th both of those things are preserved in different ways, obviously. I think Bitcoin is, uh, you know, a, a step change in the latter, you know, and the former one maybe will still be mired in all the different methods of establishing and, and protecting that as we move forward. And, you know, the story of history moves on. But, um, yeah, interesting questions. I know you got to go. What? I know CT and HRF are, are teaming up to do some stuff around the Oslo Freedom Forum. Mm -hmm. uh, by the time this comes out, I think uh, the press release will be out. So you're, you got the clear yeah. to, uh, to mention it. So what's, what's going on? Yeah, well, um, we're going to team up to support financial freedom programming and a Bitcoin Academy at the Oslo Freedom Forum, which is a uh, a conference produced by the human rights foundation. It'll be the 14th annual event. It takes place in downtown Oslo in Norway. Um, it's a gathering of, uh, human rights activists with technologists, philanthropists, journalists, and other people who are interested in seeing the world be a more free and open place. Um, since 2017, we've had like a Bitcoin element to the programming. It's, it started out as very small and it's kind of grown over time. And with CT support, we're going to have a pretty comprehensive, um, uh, track and, and, and element to that program where, you know, human rights activists and journalists from all over the world will be, uh, if they want to, they can learn about these ideas. They can meet these leaders in this field. Um, and they can learn how to use Bitcoin, you know, for whatever they need, you know, logistically, they need to, they need to pay somebody in a different country. They need to deliver funds to somebody who's had their bank account frozen. Like the, you know, they're going to learn, they're going to have that, you know, brightest people on earth there in this field to help them. Um, and, and a diverse set of people who come from all over the world who are dealing with these issues and building and educating. So we'll have builders, we'll have educators. I'm excited to release this speaker list soon. It's going to be great. Um, so, uh, yeah, May, May, May 23 to 25 Oslo, uh, you could buy tickets today. We have a, um, like a, like a very cheap kind of, uh, student ticket that's very cheap for students. We also have a, like a daytime pass that's very inexpensive and reasonable, I think 
for the kind of quality program you get. And that gives you access to all this sort of daytime events. Um, we, we make the price higher for the evening events, um, for obvious reasons as a charity, we, we need to make sure we have some income. Um, sure. but we also raise money from sponsors. So it's awesome to, to work with CT alongside a whole bunch of other sponsors like Twitter and the Norwegian government and, um, different, different kinds of public and private foundations. For example, Sergey Brin, Google co-founder, he, he, he has a history of growing up in a dictatorship and he's, he's always been keen to support us. So, um, it's, it's a diverse group of people who back us and it's really exciting to have CT involved and we're going to do a lot in Norway, I think with regard to Bitcoin and, and freedom. So it's, I'm looking forward Amazing. to it. Awesome. Well, look, man, uh, I know you've got a lot on your plate, so I'll let you go. I could talk to you for another three hours. So we might have to spark this up again, uh, in Miami in a few weeks time. Yeah. I appreciate the time and all of your work again. So, um, yeah, let's, let's talk soon. All right. Keep up the good work. Take care, John. Take care. See you, brother. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop. We at CT are very excited to be collaborating with Alex and his team at the upcoming Oslo Freedom Forum in May. To register to attend, visit oslofreedomforum.com. If you'd like to hear more from Alex, follow him on Twitter at Gladstein, visit hrf.org, and find his many great articles at bitcoinmagazine.com. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Closing the Loop, and we'll see you next time.